Do you like to be surprised? Huh? Imagine someone threw a surprise birthday party for you. By a show of hands, how many of you would like love that? Like that would just be awesome. Okay, many. How many of you would be absolutely horrified? Absolutely horrified. Yeah, Caitlin, yep. Yep, I think I probably would too. You know, surprise is a unique part of human experience, isn't it? If you think about it, it's not all that uncommon. I remember um, some time ago walking into my wife's office unexpected with an eight-year-old, eight, eight-week-old puppy. That was a good husband day for sure. Yep. And what a surprise. Endless smiles and Facebook photos. But a surprise can also be something that could be rather terrifying. I remember last summer swimming in the Gulf of Mexico when suddenly I felt something that didn't feel small brush up against my leg. Has that ever happened to you? Not a happy surprise. I would argue that a high-pitched scream is the only godly response in that moment. Um, A surprise could also be something frustrating. I remember a while back, my sweet wife Mel was attempting to grill a cheeseburger on our indoor George Foreman grill. And after a few moments passing and the burger not really coming along like she was expecting, she realized she'd accidentally grabbed the waffle maker. (laughs) True story. I love you, baby. That was a frustrating surprise. Can you imagine? But the surprise that we're going to see in God's word this morning is not one of great joy. It's not one of fear or frustration for that matter. Rather a surprise that's confusing. A situation puzzling. The title of the message this morning is Invitation to an Outcast. Invitation to an outcast, and we're going to see how the Holy Spirit has specifically tailored John chapter four to reveal to us this, how Jesus pursues broken people, how the Savior of the world pursues broken people, and we're gonna see it unfold in four distinct frames. Think of like a comic strip, right, that has individual frames, We're going to see this story of ours in John chapter 4 unfold in four distinct frames. Look at the first frame with me, if you would. Frame one, the setting. The setting. If you were taking notes, you might write that down to kind of track along this morning. The setting. I'd like to invite you, friends, to journey back with me in your minds to the rugged, sun-parched land of first century Palestine. And we read here in John 4, verse 3, that Jesus is leaving Judea, which is southern, and departing for Galilee in the north. And he has to pass through Samaria. He has to pass through Samaria. Really? Does he have to? You know, if we were to look at a map of first century Palestine, it'd be easy to recognize that Jesus easily could have gone west along the Mediterranean coast up to Galilee. He and his men easily could have gone east into Perea and up into Galilee. So why does Jesus have to go directly through Samaria? Well, you might argue it's simply a matter of convenience. It's the most direct route, right? But what if? What if there was a greater reason for Jesus having to pass through Samaria? What if Jesus has a plan that none of his comrades are yet aware of? An appointment to which he cannot be late. 
And so the scene is being set here. Welcome to Sychar. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus and his disciples arrive outside of the rather ordinary Sumerian town of Sychar. Because the Jewish day begins at 6 a.m., we know that it being the sixth hour means it's what time? High noon. It's high noon. The sun is directly overhead. It's the hottest part of the day. And thank heavens these guys come upon the first century equivalent of a Dasani vending machine. Jacob's well. You know, it's not an uncommon experience to thirst, is it? Whether you're at the park with your kids on a weekend like this, hasn't it been lovely? Sweating, thirsty, maybe it's at practice after school or the gym before work in the morning. The reality is that you and I, we sweat, we lose our strength, and we thirst. We long for some water with just a place to sit down and and cool off. Now imagine with me the creator of all things having taken on human flesh and with it, of course, human weakness. Tired. God. Tired. As Emmanuel, God with us, continues to learn what it means to be a frail, fleshed human. This is a weakness that Jesus would feel even on his dying day. When from the cross of crucifixion, he would cry, do you know? I thirst. I thirst. Jesus can feel his flesh in this moment. God's son feels human as he sits down beside this well. And in a profound irony, we see the living water in need of liquid water. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7, you see it there? A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Pause right there. This is frame two. Frame one, the setting. Frame two, the Samaritan. The Samaritan. An ordinary occurrence, right? A woman drawing water seems like no big deal. Well, actually, this has just become a surprisingly tense situation for three reasons. For three reasons. First of all, because Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Jews don't go to Samaria. We'll see it in verse 9. Because the Samaritan people are Jews who have intermarried with non-Jews, and thus they're viewed as as half-breeds, as sellouts, impure by their purebred neighbors. The Samaritan people are thus ostracized, isolated and outcasts in every right, demeaned and looked down upon, leaving the land of Samaria a Jewish no-man's land. And in walks Jesus. Isn't that great? In walks Jesus. This is surprising to say the least. Not only is Jesus a Jew, secondly, Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbi was the title given to a Jewish teacher. And rabbis, not surprisingly, held themselves to a higher standard of conduct than the average Jewish citizen. Much like a pastor of today, 
Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbis were known to never speak to women in public. And some of the most devout would refrain even from speaking to the women of their own families. So we have here an elite Jew, a teacher, Jesus, a teacher of great esteem, sitting exhausted by a well, and of all places, Samaria, alone. Well, almost alone. That's the third thing. Not only is Jesus a Jew, not only is Jesus a rabbi, thirdly, now Jesus is alone with a woman. A Jewish rabbi and a woman alone together. Not just any woman, a half-breed, Samaritan woman. If you walked up on this scene, if you or I walked up on this scene as a first-century Jewish individual, you'd instantly feel awkward, uncomfortable, confused, even troubled, perhaps. It's just not right. This is scandalous. What's going on here? Jesus, what are you doing? We read on. In verse 7, Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is frame three, the shock. The shock. By sending his men into a Samaritan city like this to do business with them, to buy their food, Jesus is obliterating the culturally acceptable expectations of segregation and discrimination. And now he's left conveniently alone for an undistracted conversation with a woman who desperately needs hope. Jesus has set himself up perfectly. And so he asks for a drink. This woman's just going about her business, probably trying to avoid eye contact with the random, sweaty Jewish rabbi sitting by the well. Kind of sketchy, you know what I mean? When Jesus interjects himself, interjects himself into her world, he pursues her. He pursues her. And we can't help but notice three things about this woman. The first is that she's indifferent. She's indifferent with no concern about her lost spiritual condition. And she has no clue who Jesus is. I can remember as a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, standing out on the cold, winter, windy streets, attempting to stop passersby to engage them in a conversation about Jesus. I'd usually say something like, hey, do you have a moment to answer a couple of questions for me? Followed by something like, do you have any spiritual beliefs? But oftentimes what would happen is that I would say nothing. I would just stand there because I was afraid to step out, afraid of what people might think of me, right? Who's this loony guy on the street trying to like proselytize me? And of those times that I didn't speak up and step out to engage someone in a conversation, how many times do you think someone walked up to me and said, hi, sir, could we talk about Jesus? Hold up the universal sign for how many times that happened. Zero times. Zero times, right? And in the same way that the people I saw on the streets of Chicago were not walking up to me concerned about their spiritual needs, this woman of Sychar, she's not looking for a savior. She's not looking for a conversation, much less a conversion. She's indifferent 
She's indifferent toward her spiritual need of forgiveness and new life, routinely going about just another day. Not only is she indifferent, secondly, she's isolated. She's isolated with no community. By coming to draw water at high noon, this woman is intentionally avoiding contact with the other women of the town who would have always, as was the custom, come either in the morning or in the evening to draw water, the cooler hours of the day. Some historians even think that there were wells located closer to Sychar, wells that this woman could have stopped at sooner along her way, but wells that would have likely increased her chances of running into an old friend or husband. Because thirdly, we see about this woman is that she is immoral. No character. She is immoral, lacking character. As her conversation with Jesus will go on, we'll see that Jesus is speaking here with a woman who has a commitment issue, a faithfulness issue. You might say a sex issue. She's been searching for love in all the wrong places. And this is certainly why she's come to the well, isolated and alone. Shame shuts us off from other people, doesn't it? Her immorality is no small issue either because, interestingly, the Samaritan people held solely to the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, which in Leviticus chapter 20 expressly states that the consequence for adultery is death. Death. So we meet here a woman who has made, in her culture, a lifestyle of capital punishment, crime. Try to imagine the fear, the shame, the rejection, and pains of regret that we can only imagine have dominated this woman's life for years, as if being viewed by her society as a dirty Samaritan wasn't enough. This woman would have been seen as a dirty, dirty Samaritan in the margin of the margin of her society. Did you know that every time we choose to sin, we choose to suffer? When you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. And we meet here a woman who is surely feeling that, the full force of her past sins, demeaned and looked down upon, despised and dejected in Jesus. In spite of all these things, Jesus Christ wants to talk to her, to her. We might expect Jesus to meet with Pastor Mark, right? We might expect Jesus to meet with the mayor or the UN or somebody like that. But Sychar, with, with a woman who everyone would have agreed was a sellout, a half-breed, adulteress. What? Why? Weird. Jesus, what are you thinking? This is a riveting scene. This is riveting. In spite of all these things, Jesus wants to talk to her. And this woman, understanding full well the treatment her society owes her for her relational and sexual exploits, understanding all too well the Jewish racism that she surely has lifelong experiences of, sounds here startled and confused. Do you see what she says in verse 9? You see, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? 
a woman of Samaria. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you, Jesus is fascinating. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus is like, excuse me, ma'am, but you should be asking me for a drink. And she's like, say what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't even have a bucket. She might be sarcastic here. She might be sincere. We can't see her body language or hear the tone of her voice, but we know her words. Essentially like, sir, you don't even have a bucket. Like, Shut it down, please. Why are you talking to me anyway? (laughs) And with this, the time has come for Jesus to make his invitation. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, referring to the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. I heard one pastor say, pause, Jesus didn't have a bucket He was the bucket. He was the bucket. The water, you see here, verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I mean, who would say no to an offer of permanent thirst satisfaction, right? No more kicking your tin water water bottle over in church and making a scene, You don't need water. You're never going to be thirsty again. No more water break 30 seconds into your amateur league soccer game, right? Like no more. Thirst is quenched. This woman, seemingly for the sake of her own comfort and convenience, wants to accept Jesus' offer of living water. But get this. Jesus does not leave his gospel presentation short. Jesus does not grant this woman eternal life based on the idea of making her earthly life a little bit easier. Jesus' next words aren't, wonderful, bow your head and repeat after me. Why not? Why not? Because the true gospel always confronts and deals with sin. With sin, the true gospel, friends, according to God's word, is not just a lottery ticket to the good life, but rather a face-to-face confrontation between the Savior and my sin. The gospel is a call to repentance. Any gospel that does not demand a turn from and leaving behind of sin should be rejected and labeled as false. No, so no, repeat this after me from Jesus here, but rather, it's about to heat up, you ready? Rather. Verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Seems simple enough. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Just when this woman is ready to write Jesus off, to turn and to leave, he pursues her. He pursues her. He acknowledges her honesty. She's told the truth. No husband here, right? Just not the whole truth. Kind of like when you text your friend, be there soon, I'm on my way. 
And what you mean is that you're just getting out of the shower? I know you've never done that, right? What you mean is that, you know, you're in route, kinda. Um, you'll be there, you know, it's truth-ish, just not all the details, right? Jesus is like, well, okay, you're not lying. And now Jesus places, this is amazing, his full deity on display. Because did you know that not only does Jesus know the thoughts of every person, he also knows our history. Our history. <laughs> and that's not good news for me. Is it for you? It's not good news for our friend here in this story. In an instant, Jesus calls her shamefully promiscuous past into full view. What a shock! What a shock! And I believe we begin to see a turn in the story here. For, for one, this woman actually seems somewhat unfazed by Jesus calling to the light of her sin, almost as if to say with hung, head hung, like, yeah, everybody knows it. Instead of defense or avoidance, this woman rather seems interested to have just come to the understanding that Jesus is capable of giving divine revelation. For how could he know my relationship history if it weren't God who told him? She must think to herself. Look at verse 19. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So suddenly, Jesus has been launched from suspicious-looking Jewish loner to the prestigious status of prophet. And now this woman wants all the inside info she can get. She seems sincere as we suppose her heart is being softened by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps she really does want to be right with God. If only she knew how. And so she asks. Did you see what she asks about? About worship. Worship, which after all, lies at the very heart of what it means to possess saving faith. How am I to worship God, sir? This dear woman seems to be coming to grips with her sin, her need for forgiveness, and she, it seems, begins to respond to Jesus' pursuit of her. It's as though she's saying to Jesus, I know I'm not right with God, but I want to be. Where do I have to go to meet God? And be forgiven. Just like all of us before Jesus, her only reference for worship is external religious duty. She wants to know where the right place is. Which church should I go to? College Park or Trader's Point? Which Bible translation should I read out of? How should I dress? The guy up there has a sport coat on. Am I supposed to wear one of those? You know? And Jesus lovingly blows her categories out of the water. Look down at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in what? Truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is like, 
You don't worship at either place, man. There's a third way. Worship does not require a particular place. Rather, worship, true worship is done in spirit and in truth. First of all, by spirit, what Jesus is referring to is not the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but rather to the human spirit, telling this woman that acceptable worship of God is not measured in terms of external religious appearances, but in terms of internal heart attitude. Acceptable worship is about attitude, not appearance, about a posture, not a place. Secondly, by truth, Jesus highlights for this woman the necessity of worshiping God for who he truly is, for who he truly is. It's not just worship the universe like you really mean it, and that'll work, or, or worship Allah with your whole heart, and God will accept it. It's not enough to only have one or the other, either the right heart or the right truth. Jesus tells this woman that she needs both, a heart that's right along with an accurate understanding of who God is as revealed in Scripture. Wow. Recently, I heard of a woman who met a wonderful man online, and they began to develop a friendship over the phone. They just talked on the phone every day, every day, talked on the phone. Uh, and weeks went by, and they began to get very serious with each other. And she just loved this guy. He seemed youthful. He seemed accomplished. He seemed kind and funny. He was dynamite, much like Dale Shaw. Anybody know Dale? Just a dynamite guy. And the only problem with their relationship was that they had they'd never met in person. And so the day finally came them to meet. And to the woman's surprise, the man who she, she thought had been young and lively was, in fact, old and wobbly, much like Ron Page, if you know Pastor Ron. Ron, are you in here? Somebody please tell him I said that. He'll probably like that. You know Ron. Well, it didn't take long for their relationship to disintegrate. Why? Yeah, because, was it because the woman wasn't sincerely fond of the man? Of course not. Of course not. She was sincerely fond of a man who did not exist, right? An imaginary man in the same way that that woman began to love an imaginary man. Humans, you and me this morning are capable, fully capable of loving imaginary God's, even an imaginary God that we say we got from the Bible. And Jesus says, dear woman, if you want to be a real worshiper of God, get to know him for who he really is. Worship him in truth with a heart of humble adoration. And so we reach the mountaintop of our story. Verse 25. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, do you see it? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
I who speak to you am he. If you're still keeping track, frame four, the savior of the world. The savior of the world. The woman is like, I know a savior's coming and he's gonna make it all right in Jesus. No holding back. Unequivocally declares himself to be the only begotten son of God. You see, our English Bibles have been translated from the original language the New Testament was written in. Anybody know what that was? Yep, Greek, Greek. And so what we read is, I who speak to you am he, verse 26. But literally, in the original language, Jesus speaks to this woman and says this, I who speak to you am. I, parentheses, who speak to you, am. Are you tracking? I am. You said, Taylor, who cares? Because Jesus is declaring himself to be the one and only great I am. The same I am that this woman has certainly read about in her Samaritan Pentateuch. For in Exodus 3.14, creator God self-identifies as I am who I am. Can you say awesome? Awesome, amazingly, astoundingly. This is one of 23 times in the Gospel of John that Jesus steps out from behind the curtain of his humanity and declares himself to be God. I am God. One commentator writes, these words must have rocked the woman to the core of her being. The man who just a few minutes earlier had made a simple request for a drink of water. You ever hear someone say, that escalated quickly. That escalated quickly. Now claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. Look at verse 28 with me. So the woman left her water jar. She found the living water, baby. And went away into town and said to the people, come, verse 29, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. What a surprise. An invitation to an outcast for eternal life and forgiveness of sin. The Savior, friends, of the world pursues Broken people. Broken people like you and I. Loved ones, I believe there are three things we have to recognize in this story, if nothing else, three things. First of all, it's the majesty of Jesus. The majesty of Jesus. Jesus is God and man. Sovereign and suffering. Compassionate and confrontational. Did you know this is the very reason the entire gospel of John was written? John chapter 20 verse 31 we read, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Life. Do you want life? Real life. Full life. Jesus has it. That you may have life in his name. You know, so much more than being about one woman from an average town in Samaria. This story is meant to reveal to you and I the glory of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. There is no other. And in a climate of post-truth pluralism and relativity where tolerance seems chief among all virtues, we are reminded in this beautiful story that Jesus Christ alone is the way 
to God. Jesus Christ alone is the truth about God. And Jesus Christ alone is the life and the life giver of God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name we know. Majesty. Majesty, the majesty of Jesus. We also have to recognize here the mission of Jesus. Not only his majesty, but his mission. You know, Jesus isn't only the savior of the world. He's savior of the, what? The world. In other words, he's savior to everyone. To all, including me, including you. Jesus chooses not to view the Samaritan people as misfits, but as a mission field. Jesus doesn't view this woman and her people as left out or, or, or less important. He loves instead. He loves them. Jesus Christ is not a racist. Jesus is not politically correct. He does not show preferential treatment to the better off. Jesus Christ does not show favoritism, loved ones. Is that good news for you this morning? Man, good news for me. Jesus Christ came for all, for every one of us. Jesus cares more about you than he cares about your record, than he cares about your drug history, your past marriages, your mounting financial debts, your abortion, your porn addiction, your political party, your race, or your neighborhood. He cares more about you than any of these things. Did you know that? The only begotten Son of God has come to stoop to your and my sidecar. Scandalous condescension. Friend, wherever you are this morning, please hear this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Won't you give your life to him before you leave here this morning? What's stopping you? He's ready. How's he been pursuing you? He has. We see the mission, the majesty of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. And, and thirdly, we see the model of Jesus. If you've been rescued by grace, which I know that many of us here have, which is amazing, and you are following Jesus, the Savior of the world, friend, you and I must be compelled to go where Jesus goes. You and I must be driven, brother and sister, driven by mercy and love into the broken, marginalized, hopeless lives of the outcasts in our city. Jesus did not stiff-arm brokenness. He actually sought it out. We do not follow the Savior of the wealthy. We do not follow the Savior of the white. We do not follow the Savior of the wise. We're following the Savior who had to go to Sychar, who had to meet a woman regardless of what people might think, who had to go where pious religious folks would not and were not going. We follow, rather, loved ones, the Savior of the wounded, the Savior of the weak, in the washed up, the savior of the wicked, in the wasted, the savior indeed of the world. How can you 
child of God, use this summer to pursue a friend like Jesus would? What summer fest kit out there can best help your family pursue your neighbors for Jesus this summer? What vision trip might, be, might God be calling you to participate in? Won't you at least sign up for a, a Brookside Road Tour to see how Jesus is pursuing and mending broken lives in our very own city? I know Pastor Dale would love to talk to you about that. Family of God, followers of Jesus, what sidecar is God calling you to this morning? Would you please bow your heads with me? And as we prepare to pray, I'd like to invite a few of our pastors and elders with their wives, if they're available, to come stand down front here. And they would be honored to talk and pray with you this morning about whatever God may be doing in your heart right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your truth that our souls so desperately need. Thank you for loving us and pursuing us even when we're so broken. We worship you, God, this morning for being a God who pursues. Father, for the person here this morning right now who feels broken, unworthy, maybe even hopeless to a degree, thank you for pursuing them. They've been thirsty, perhaps looking for satisfaction in all the wrong wells. God, please allow this to be the morning that they give everything to you in faith and fall completely upon your forgiving, fulfilling grace. And for those of us who have already been brought to life in Christ this morning, may we burn with holy passion to be to those around us who you have been to us, pursuing, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Oh God, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.